Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm Ari Maidel, and today I'm speaking with Rabbi Daniel Geffen, who is the rabbi at the Sag Harbor Synagogue out in uh, the Hamptons of Long Island. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Ari, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I have to frame this up because people might be wondering why on a productivity <laughs> show I wanted to talk to a rabbi, and I have some very, very specific reasons. Um, there's, well, so there's a few ones which I'll get to, but one of the, the big ones is that, as I told you in a conversation we had, I'm very impressed with anyone in your position, honestly, being able to consistently produce content mm. in the form of uh, programming and uh, your sermons and, and everything, and also just being able to relate things from a very old text mm-hmm. to modern issues and problems and using that as sort of a guide. And one of the things that I pride myself on is being able to sort of connect the dots between different kinds of information. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I just very impressed with the whole mindset and the way that that, that works. And with Hanukkah coming up, mm-hmm. I thought that this was a really timely conversation to have. So with that, um, if you could just give us a little background on how you became a rabbi and, uh, and and sort of what that entails for people who might not know. And then I want to ask about that content question. Sure. It'd be my pleasure. And, uh, you know, it might take up the full half hour if I give you the full story of how I got here. Uh, but I'll, <laughs> I'll certainly do my best. So uh, it happens I come from a rabbinic family. So my great-grandfather, uh, Rabbi Tobias Geffen, came from Lithuania in the early 1900s. Uh, interestingly enough, settled in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, in, during that time, through interesting circumstances, became the first rabbi to make Coca-Cola kosher. So that's a whole nother conversation for another time. But it's established our family in the rabbinic world here in, in quite an interesting way uh, from the outset. And then my grandfather, Rabbi Samuel Geffen, um, became a rabbi as well and eventually served most of his rabbinate in uh, Forest Hills, Queens. Um, and my dad started down that path, but uh, for all sorts of uh, again, interesting reasons uh, decided the rabbinate was not for him, stayed in Jewish education. It's important for every once in a while in rabbinic families to have at least one person not follow the uh, the family plan. So he, he didn't follow through on that. And then my older brother Jonah and I both decided to become rabbis about the same time, um, which was, uh, let's see, probably about 2007, um, and to pursue uh, what we feel like is a combination of both, um, and I, I'll put it back into the eye for myself. I was blessed to grow up in a uh, in a wonderful Jewish household, in a Jewish family, a Jewish day school. And so Judaism obviously has been a very important part of my life from the day that I was born. And because I love it so much and because it's been so meaningful for me, uh, I chose the, the best avenue I could think that would allow me to bring whatever personal gifts I may have um, in, in certain ways uh, and connecting it to something that I love in Judaism and, and most importantly to share that with other people. Um, so the process itself is is time-consuming, there's no question. The path that I went, I'm a Reform rabbi, so I was ordained by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, uh, and that program is a five-year program of which I did an extra year to get a master's in Jewish education. So when it's all said and done, uh, in rabbinical school, you usually come out with a master's of Hebrew literature and the like, uh, and then in Hebrew, what is called a smicha. Um, which is basically rabbinic coordination. So from that, I was lucky enough, as I said, to win the rabbinic lottery, and I ended up in Sag Harbor at Temple of Das Israel. I'm uh, quite thrilled about that. So I think that's um, hopefully a sufficient... You know, just look, it, rabbis are not known for their brevity, uh, so I'm going to try my best no. to keep keep focused as I can. No, no, and that's, that, that, that's, that's perfect. And, and, and now we're joined by... No, well, hey, Nick. So. How's it going, All man? All right, it's great. 
it's a real treat. So, so first of all, so thank you yeah. for that, that background and for people who, who don't know how, what that process is like. So as I was saying about the content, mm-hmm. right? So for me, mm-hmm. I'm always talking about, like, it's a, it's a question that people ask me quite often. It's like how I come up with content because I'm producing content for like 10 different hours <laughs> on a regular basis, from our <laughs> right. podcasts to our newsletters and stuff. But I mean, you have to, besides just having to give, you know, Saturday services and stuff, like where are you drawing mm-hmm. inspiration for your content really i mean i'm gonna keep calling it content no i think it's sort of general but that's really what it it really i think that's probably the most you know appropriate word for the variety of types of things that certainly that you engage in uh and that to a lesser degree that i engage in on a given week but certainly um i think that the rabbinet is unique in that way that there is an expectation not just of you know regular output of content but a varied uh degree of content in other words you know, there may be a sermon, there may be a, what's called a Devar Torah, which is more of a sort of, a, not to get too technical, but a text-based exegesis. So working from the text more than perhaps speaking about, say, a, a social matter or political matter that's of relevance that might be more common in a sermon. Uh, then there are classes that can be based on history, classes based on text, classes based on Hebrew. So the degree to which, right, the, one of the great challenges isn't necessarily always so much coming up with the content as it is figuring out the right content for the right format and the right format for the right time and the right time for the right people. So it's an interconnected um, and oftentimes very complicated uh, scenario because you're also trying to, at least in, in, in my particular synagogue, to be able to engage with the congregation or the students uh, who may come from very different backgrounds, very different levels of what you'd call Judaic knowledge, and somehow or another have to be able to appeal to all of them without, you know, being too intellectual for those who don't have that background or for being too, you know, sort of simplistic for those who are looking for a more complicated kind of conversation. The best example that I, I use of this is actually something, and it's going to sound a little ridiculous, something like Sesame Street or The Muppet Show, right, growing up, in which the content was always created Right. On the one hand, for the kids, but also for the parents who are watching. So it was basically layered content. So oftentimes that's the position I find myself in, which is challenging. And certainly the expectation is that every single week I'm going to have something new to say about. Uh, and in our tradition, when you read the Torah, you read it every single year. You're reading the same stuff over and over again. So not only do you have the challenge of, of trying to come up with new content, it's that every year you're basing your conversation off of the same core text. And yet your task is to make it relevant in the modern construct of everybody who's coming to hear you speak on that particular day. So in my case, I'm, I'm very lucky that I was born in an era in the computer and internet age, um, because that's the way that my, my brain best operates, through, through hyperlinking, through the use of the internet as, as a means to access not just our traditional text, but commentaries, both modern and ancient that are much more easily accessible online than they would be necessarily in a traditional library scenario in which you have to go to each particular uh, book, pull out what you need. Uh, In this case, there are a number of resources that have been created over the years that actually make, in particular, text study very easy and and actually hyperlinked. In which, you know, for example, if you're studying a page of Talmud, uh, which, you know, not to get too complicated in that explanation, but is the sort of oral rabbinic tradition to which uh, most of the Jewish practice of today owes itself. Uh, But perhaps it's referencing something in the Torah in the five books of Moses. So rather than having to pull out a second book to compare the two things, you simply click on the hyperlink, click if you're on Wikipedia, and it takes you to the the text that you're looking at and back and forth. So... 
that is, and I know in particular for you guys, efficiency being of, of great interest. That's one of the things that I know for myself uh, has made my experience of preparing content much more efficient than it would be should I had been a rabbi 30 years ago or even 20 years, ago, probably even 10 years ago. So for your own mm-hmm. self, uh, like what do you do in terms of continual education mm-hmm. apart from like, you know, coming up with content yourself and what you're describing now? Is there like some formal... I don't know. Do you do you have like a group with like rabbis that, and you do like an offsite or some some type of yeah, I don't know, no no it's some an ex- type of schooling post graduating rabbinical school just for continual education on right. your side it, of things or getting other rabbis' points of views and insights. Absolutely, um, it's actually it's an excellent question. It's something that certainly within the reform movement of Judaism, and I'm sure this is probably true of the other denominations as well. There's been a real, I'd say, significant attempt to create more opportunities for ongoing learning in a formal format for rabbis as they mm-hmm. transition out of school and into pulpit position. One of the, the challenges that all pulpit rabbis face, and I imagine this is true actually of clergy in general, um, is how to find the balance between the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly exp- uh, you know, expectations of the pastoral role of, of being a, you know, a, a rabbi, or uh, sometimes the almost CEO-ish role that a rabbi has to take on within the sort of... Um, you know, the bare bones, the, the basics of how a temple ultimately operates, but that the major reason for rabbi's existence is, in fact, to study uh, and to teach based on that ongoing process of learning. Um, and so um, right. what the challenge that I faced personally, I'll, I'll be quite frank, is how to strike that balance. And then I can say very clearly that in the, my, this is now about two and a half years out of school, my first, you know, culprit. Um, that I'm just now starting to find a way to build into my weekly experience, even if it's only an hour, an hour of dedicated time to be able to, to study. But there are many other opportunities that I hope to take advantage of as time goes on, uh, which include, for example, conferences that happen quite frequently. And I'm lucky since I'm not so far from the city. The city has, you know, probably on a weekly basis, uh, various opportunities to learn either through the seminaries or through other Jewish institutions. So there are many opportunities for sort of what I'd call uh, more uh, specific learning opportunities, you know, something along a particular theme or with a particular teacher. And in terms of my movement, the, the Reform Rabbis have a union known as the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And so built into that union are a number of things that help rabbis in the field to continue their process of learning. And then on top of it, the, the other thing, there, there is a traditional modality of, of learning in Judaism that's called a chevruta partnership. Uh, and what it re- essentially means is basically you have one person to whom you develop a, a, a deep, ongoing learning relationship with in which you're studying the same text on a regular basis. And in the process, you get to learn a lot about yourself and the other person through this sort of very direct uh, kind of experience. That's been much more challenging for me to do because I happen to live now in a, in a place that does not necessarily have a lot of, um, of people who are in the same sort of level of learning and interest in that kind of consistent learning. But I have continued relationships with mentors of mine from when I was in school and other rabbis that I'm, I'm friendly with. Um, but it's not the same kind of thing. And that's something that for myself, I know is something that is, is really important that I find a way to develop going forward. But all of that is a long-winded answer to your, I think, more direct question, which is to say that there really are actually a lot of different opportunities for ongoing, I'd say, professional development and rabbinic development. It's much more a factor of trying to figure out how to structure time to be able to have those experiences 
um, in a way that that doesn't interact with negatively the other responsibilities of, of the position. How do you be available to to your community specifically, like the Sag Harbor um, congregation? How do people ask you questions? Is it always like an office hours in private or have you considered you know, like Slack or like a Facebook group to like have like some some type of like forum, like ask a rabbi so, and maybe it's yeah. not super personal, but just like, you know, in general. Like I wanna I have a bunch of questions I wanna ask you on this regarding like kosher and stuff like that. Where right. I'd, be, I'd be happy to share to ask those questions in a group format. So have you considered it's actually a group format. It's a wonderful idea. I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've done it in a much more analog way in that there's been a sort of longstanding tradition here, um, oftentimes on weekends in which, for whatever reason, the rabbi did not have as much time to prepare a sermon as he would have liked uh, to do an informal Ask the Rabbi session during our Friday night service. Um, and so that's, right. that's something that is not institutionalized. It's been more sort of ad hoc. Uh, but has always been actually one of the most meaningful things for people who come to the service because, right, as you, I'm sure, have a list of probably 10 or 20 things that you'd love to be able to ask. And I, you know, I honestly had not thought of using a digital platform uh, to allow for that because it would certainly open it up, I think, much more broadly and would be quite fascinating. Um, you know, I struggle a little bit just in terms of the demographics of my congregation, which skews a little bit older, um, that there is a sort of... Uh, I wouldn't say a resistance to online things, but uh, it's a little bit more challenging. Yeah. It requires a little bit more mm. initial energy to get people uh, uh, sort of comfortable totally with the that. concept. But I do, you know, it, it speaks to another challenge that I know you and I have talked about at length um, and to which I know that, that the two of you have been working, you know, significantly on just trying to create a, a more efficient mechanism for the simple act of creating, um, you know, meetings. Um, and to be able to do that in a much more streamlined and automated sense, because inevitably I spend, I, I don't think I can calculate it out exactly, but I suspect that I probably waste several hours every week just trying to negotiate those kinds of meetings in which somebody wants to ask me something in private or to ask me it directly as opposed to over email. Uh, and just being able to set up those five or six meetings that happen every week can sometimes take you know two hours just the back and forth and the back and forth of trying to make that that happen. Uh, well, we can we can we can fix that for you right now on the on the yeah. phone. Yeah. Uh, go go and take a look at go and take a look at. Well, what what you should do is we'll we'll set this yeah. up for you. Um, we'll create you a URL, talktodan.com, and we'll then we'll connect that to um, a service called Calendly, which connects mm -hmm. your calendar. So then next time someone wants to make an appointment with you. Uh, you'll be able to tell them just to go to talktodan.com and pick whatever slot they want. That's fantastic. That is uh, so, that is life changing yeah. right there. That's that's, uh, that's, that's what I like. That's our Hanukkah mitzvah. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you guys got, gave me a gift. Of tricks up our <laughs> you know, early gift <laughs> that's this your year. Hanukkah gift, yeah. We very much appreciate <laughs> it, and and not just by me, of course, but by all the people that you know are on the other end of this. They're equally involved in the whole yeah. world. You know, it's um, that would be yeah. wonderful. What are your thoughts on uh, mm -hmm. kosher? Uh, do you think that there needs to be some sort of like revision or like like going back and like revisiting mm -hmm. the the whole theory and concept of kosher now that you know when that was created thousands of years ago the way food was processed and all of that um like the dangers of eating certain foods is different then than it is now with modern day processing of food so right my first question is do you think that we need to revisit that um and then two what do you think of those people that don't keep kosher mm -hmm. at restaurants, but then they, they'll keep a kosher house. Is that a little um, uh, contradictory right. here? So, 
Look, excellent questions, and I'll certainly, you know, I'll give this with the the caveat that this is, you know, one one rabbi's opinion and one rabbi within a particular denomination that has its own uh, sort of slant on on the question itself. So, um, it, without getting too deep into the rabbit hole here, uh, sort of broad sense of what kashrut is about it in general. So, when it like the laws of kashrut appear in the Torah, they're pretty straightforward and pretty simple and pretty specific to to certain scenarios and to certain animals etc not all of those laws uh, make rational sense in other words right i can't necessarily explain to you the, the rational logic behind why a cloven hoof and uh, chewing cud uh, should have any relation to the sacredness of you know the eating animals etc and, and the relationship vis-a-vis god and that whole dynamic um, some it of the didn't have to be because the risk of getting well. Look, so you know there are a lot of. It just depends on your perspective, right? So if, if for example, if you were a you know a historian or a food scientist or an anthropologist um, or a sociologist looking back at at something like kashrut in in that kind of way, I'm sure that there probably have been many people who have written extensively about the those kinds of arguments as to why kashrut may have existed in terms of the torah itself though if you're just looking at the text itself in the context of the text itself it doesn't really give any of those kinds of explanations it simply says this is what is done or this is what is not done therefore when you're talking about matters of kashrut for example with a, a person who comes from a traditional background an orthodox background etc um it, it doesn't matter how either rational or irrational the conversation becomes it, it, it is just a tradition of understanding that there are certain laws that are easy to understand and logical in their own right. Like, so for example, thou shalt not murder, right? doesn't require a whole lot more explanation. It, it just makes sense in and of itself. But there are many other laws, like for example, there is something called shatnez, which is a prohibition against mixing uh, wool and linen in your clothing, right? So there isn't really necessarily a, an obvious way to make that rational. It just is a law that is expected to be followed. So for a traditional person, there's never going to be a question about the concept of the laws of kashrut, um, not because there isn't some other way of potentially understanding it, simply because these are the laws that they and their families and their tradition and, and their community have followed forever. With the caveat that there are always scenarios where something new comes along, and then there is a question as to how it fits within the context of the ancient laws of kashrut. So I can give you an example. I wrote a what's called a chuva, which is a, a rabbinic, uh, basically, um, you know, explanation or ruling on a, on a particular matter of Jewish law. And, and just to be very clear, my writing on this has no weight whatsoever in any any legal construct whatsoever in Judaism. It just simply was a, a mechanism for writing something in school that was about the question of um, what is called in vitro meat. So I'm not sure if either you're familiar with this. If you Google it, you'll you'll see. So the science has developed so far at this point that there is basically a, a means to which in the future, I'm sure not so distant in the future, it will be possible to create a synthetic, uh, or I shouldn't say synthetic, a laboratory-grown meat product that is grown from the stem cells or the cells taken out of living animals and then grown with a scaffolding uh, in a laboratory environment. So the question of something like that, right, the rabbis of 2,000 years ago could never have predicted that such a thing would exist. So the question is, do the laws of kashrut apply and how do they apply? Right. So those are the kinds of things that even in a traditional environment, there has to be a conversation that happens. Or like, just to give the example from my own family, as I told you, my great-grandfather was the, the person who first made Coca-Cola kosher. So he had to investigate all of the ingredients 
that were currently in Coca-Cola in the early 1900s. And he had to identify the one thing that was not working and then to propose, actually my Aunt Helen, I think, who did it, propose a, another option to move forward with it. Uh, but that was another example in which nobody, you know, at the time of the Talmud would have presumed there was going to be a mass-produced soda beverage that would be sold throughout the country to which Jews would wonder whether or not it could be kosher or not, right? This was a much more local kind of thing back in the day in which, you know, the in order to have a kosher animal, you had to have a rabbi who shechted it, who, who actually originally slaughtered it, et cetera. So it was very, very specific to that community. Now, to your, your larger question about, you know, reimagining what kashrut means, so being a reform rabbi, and uh, I think this would be true also for the Reconstructionist movement, not so much for the conservative movement, but part of our understanding of what are called the mitzvot, the commandments that dictate uh, traditional Jewish behaviors, one of the fundamental principles of Reform Judaism when it began in Germany in the 1800s was the idea, not necessarily to a jettisoning of all of that, but simply to say that those laws are no longer legally incumbent upon every Jewish you know, man and woman and child, or not child, man and woman, and that in fact, uh, it is our responsibility to engage with those traditions and where they are perhaps in conflict with something that has changed in the rest of the world or in our conception of the world, et cetera, uh, that there need to be adjustments to to that. So that's where you get movements like, for example, uh, the movement for for what would be called um, eco-kosher, eco-kosher. So those movements generally stick to the traditional expectations of, um, you know, what animals are kosher and how an, an, an animal that's kosher is supposed to be, you know, taken care of and slaughtered, et cetera. But they do put more emphasis on the way that the animal is treated the food that the animal is given while it's it's uh, you know growing those kinds of things that are not necessarily part of the Torah tradition but are part of a broader concept in Judaism uh, about you know how one should do everything with a certain amount of conscientious uh, attitude right in other words that we shouldn't just be shoveling every animal into our mouths and not being concerned at all for the nature of how that animal lives before it gives its life for us to eat right? That, in fact, Judaism has a lot to say about those things thematically or philosophically. And so it's really more a matter of kind of taking the ancient traditions of Kashrut and trying to apply them to other kinds of movements that are happening in the era in which we live. Um, you know, in terms of the, the question of, uh, you know, people eating out a certain way and eating in their home a certain way. So that I would say, I wouldn't look at it through the lens of, you know, right or wrong or whether it's hypocritical critical or et cetera. I certainly, you know, know pl plenty of people to whom that's, that's a normal uh, expectation. I would think about it more in terms of that this is microcosm of American Jewish experience, or certainly experience of, you know, post-enlightenment, post, um, um, you know, sort of egalitarian uh, Judaism. And, and, and really the, um, the signal that there, are, there is a tension and there always has been a tension, in particular in, let's say, in the conservative movement, right, between sticking with the traditions as much as possible, but also acknowledging that the realities of life have changed uh, so much that, um, you know, we're trying there, you know, oftentimes people are trying to make sure that rather than just completely getting rid of every aspect of traditional mitzvot and, and obligation regarding kashrut, that at the very least, we keep the home a certain way and it's protected in that kind of way. And there are expectations about what is or is not done there. And then in the outside world that they will, you know, people will engage um, in a more free experience. And so I wouldn't, 
you know, I certainly would not, uh, or nor would I be in the position to say that that's a good thing, a bad thing, or anything in between. I think it's much more just uh, an example, uh, which really, frankly, one of many, uh, of which in the last hundred years in particular, that Judaism has adapted and uh, evolved and changed um, in lots of ways uh, while, you know, it being part of the American experience, but that it's very rarely ever been a complete running in the opposite direction and leaving behind everything. It's really much more about this sort of trying to figure out the tension and trying to figure out what can we hold on to from our, our traditions and our past, while at the same time acknowledging who we actually are on a day-to-day basis, if that makes sense. One of the things that I, I thought it was a really interesting article yeah. about yeah. Uh, how Hanukkah actually presents a really interesting management principle, which is, uh, are you familiar with Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? As a matter of fact, I am. It was a required reading for my Master's of Jewish Ed class. So both me and Lou, my wife, uh, both had to read it. So it's uh, uh, okay, very so much that's, sticks that's out. That's really yeah. funny. So they, they talk, you know, in, in Covey's book, they talk about, he talks about having a, sense, a personal sense of general mm-hmm. sufficiency. Basically, if there's like enough right. for everybody and that leads to having satisfaction. And so the, this article talking about how Hanukkah is, it's an example of the abundance mindset mm-hmm. that is pretty pervasive in a lot of Judaism. And it is a real, I mean, it's a, Peter Diamantis, who is an amazing thought leader, has his Abundance 360 program. Mm-hmm. Like there's all this stuff about abundance. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Can, you, can you talk about that for a minute and how that sort of applies to people's mindset? Absolutely. I, you know, is it a very interesting article? And I think he certainly makes the, the argument that Hanukkah is, is an example of that. But the, the reality is actually that um, if I were to describe Judaism's approach to the concept of an abundance, you know, uh, sort of mindset and principle, that I would probably think more of the holidays uh, of Shavuot in the springtime and Sukkot in the fall, uh, mostly because both of those were traditionally harvest festivals in which the really almost all of the liturgy and all of the practice around it is focused on the idea of gratitude um, and abundance and harvest and, and all that kind of stuff. Hanukkah has a sort of interesting other element to it, which most people don't necessarily know. So the, the word Hanukkah, the root in itself in Hebrew, is the root for dedication. Um, and in particular, oftentimes used as rededicating, right, to something. So the idea of the story of Hanukkah, one of the stories of Hanukkah, is about the idea that the temple, which had been uh, desecrated, was taken back and was rededicated, in other words, put back into a position where it could be used again for its sacred task. Um, and that is one of the aspects of the celebration of Hanukkah, is the idea of rededicating oneself to something that is important. So I probably would sooner connect Hanukkah with that. That being said, the general overall concept in Judaism is indeed based on the idea of of an abundance mindset. Um, And one of the best examples of that is that the first prayer you're supposed to traditionally say before you do anything else, the moment that you open your eyes in the morning is a a simple prayer of thanks, is a a thank you to God. That's the way that you're supposed to start every single day as a Jewish person. Not everybody follows that tradition, but that is the traditional understanding. And I would say a vast majority of the prayers in our traditional you know, liturgy, whether you're Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, or otherwise, uh, in some form or another comes back to this concept of gratitude and gratitude from a place of understanding that have is not only in the world um, to which all of us are responsible uh, to ensure that it is not just us, me, Dan, the rabbi who has abundance and feels comfortable and taken care of, but in fact that everyone, right, Jewish, not Jewish, right, that's that's in our terminology, man, woman, child, the stranger who lives in your midst, etc., was to ensure that everybody in fact is taken care of. 
and that it very much relates, as it as it was made clear in in the article, to a broader concept of of tzedakah, which is more often than not translated or mistranslated as charity, when in fact its roots in Judaism, its root in Hebrew means righteousness, and it's the concept of you know that the overriding approach of Judaism to what we would now call social justice work is towards the idea of creating a just and right society. <laughs> All right, well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. Uh, we always yeah, like to end these calls asking so you what are your top three tips for being more effective, and <laughs> you can interpret effective however you like. It's going to sound very classical. Uh, know thyself, right? Which means to be in touch with the aspects of yourself um, that you know you are effective with, and to be equally uh, engaged in the things that you need help with. And then from that, to you know, engage with and to learn if there are other people or other resources that can help you to be more effective in the things that, that you struggle with. Uh, the, the second thing I, I think is always a question, and it's hard, is to prioritize um, and to make sure that you are thinking about when you, you know, approach a particular problem or, or uh, task, to think about doing, and I think this is a Covey thing, um, you know, to, to doing things in a, in a thoughtful and sort of, sort of uh, organized fashion in which you are operating, you know, sort of moving in a logical progression as opposed to sort of picking the task that you would like to do first and doing that when it's not necessarily the thing that's most prudent to the moment. That one I struggle with tremendously. Um, and the third thing is, as I think going back to our conversation is about, you know, a sort of a mindset of gratitude and appreciation. That effectiveness, I've found oftentimes, has to do with one's engagement with and uh, connection to the task at hand. Um, and oftentimes the tasks, again, that are the ones that are least desirable, the ones we don't want to do, or the ones that are easiest to get by us. And so in order to be effective is to, to say that we should have, you know, gratitude for the fact that we have, you know, uh, things that we love and that we're passionate about, but that also, you know, life is not always, always the things that uh, we want to do. Um, and to appreciate that sometimes, you know, there are a lot of things to be learned in the experiences that are perhaps, perhaps less palatable and less desirable to do. But uh, really, thank you guys for this and uh, for whatever it's worth. I'd love to be back on again if you have anything else, you know, Jewish related you'd like to ask. Um, but I wish uh, you and your uh, listeners. Definitely. I think I think that we that we'll definitely have you on sooner <laughs> rather than later. We're. Um, is there um, is there some like place that people can go to to learn more about? Uh, sure about sure. you or sure. synagogue or, or just in general, like somewhere you want people to, to direct them to? I, you know, I think um, it certainly be wonderful. Anybody who's ever out in the Sag Harbor area, please come by. Our website is templeadasisrael.org, A-D-A-S, Israel.org. Um, and it's got information about the synagogue, about myself. Um, and uh, my only other plug, I think, would be much more general, which is to say that this is the time of year whether you're celebrating Hanukkah or, or Christmas or Kwanzaa or any other thing, this seems to be the time of year in which all of us are focused on the idea of giving. Um, and that all of us should be thinking in the same way, um, that as we give gifts to each other and as we, we you know, uh, engage in what I think is a healthy process of getting nice things and, and enjoying life and all of that, to remember that there is a tremendous amount of need out there in the world. Uh, and that for us to give as, as we are able... Uh, um, to the organizations and to the people that are most in need. Um, and through that, I think we all develop a much better uh, world in which to share and a much better lives individually that we can. Awesome. 
It's All right, Dan. My well, pleasure. Thanks a lot, and I, I'm sure I'll see you in the next I month, sure month or so. two. Uh, I'll be out I, sh- I sure so, hope I'll see we'll see um, all of you. Thank you. And um, really, you know, wishing all of you and your your families and the uh, the listeners a, a very happy holidays, and uh, hope to be on again soon.